Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, the 743rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, You'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's get started today with... Some way, Sism. 
as also as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have, who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. Preach, girl. That's AOC. Just laying it down, literally bouncing, almost singing. Quite, quite a performance. And what in the world is she talking about? Well, she's talking about keeping Ilhan Omar on the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Congress. This is the New York Post from this afternoon. House votes to kick Representative Ilhan Omar off committee over anti-Semitic remarks. The GOP-led House voted Thursday to boot Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee over her past anti-Semitic remarks after two Republicans, once reluctant to oust her, decided to support the resolution for removal. The vote to remove Omar broke along party lines with 218 Republicans voting to strip her of her assignment and 211 Democrats backing their colleague. One Republican, David Joyce of Ohio, voted present. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced the vote Wednesday after the chamber approved the Democratic assignments for the Foreign Affairs Committee, setting the stage for the Minnesota lawmakers ouster from the panel. And skipping down a bit, Omar, 40, once compared Israel to terrorist organizations like Hamas and the Taliban and said the relationship between the Jewish state and the United States is all about the Benjamins even suggesting American lawmakers who support Israel were paid by the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. That's APAC. Omar defended herself Sunday on CNN's State of the Union by saying she was unfamiliar with tropes about Jews and money. Well, okay. I certainly did not or was not aware that the word hypnotized was a trope. I wasn't aware of the fact that there are tropes about Jews and money. That has been a very enlightening part of this journey, she said in the interview. In a Twitter post Wednesday evening, Omar urged House members to reject removing her. We can't go down this road. No member of Congress should be removed from committee because of accusations of undermining relationships with a foreign country, she said. Members must maintain their independence on policy issues. The resolution proposed by Representative Max Miller contends, Omar's comments have brought dishonor to the House of Representatives. Omar clearly cannot be an objective decision maker on the Foreign Affairs Committee, given her biases against Israel and the Jewish people, it says. Representative Michael McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said he supports the resolution. It's just that her worldview of Israel is so diametrically opposed to the committees. The Texas Republican told reporters, I don't mind having differences of opinion, but this goes beyond that. And the problems with Representative Omar 
on the Foreign Affairs Committee do indeed go beyond that. She has had quite a few issues in the past. She once called for compassion in the sentencing of men accused of trying to join ISIS. She falsely accused the Covington kids of chanting, it's not rape if you enjoy it. She claimed that Donald Trump was backing a far-right coup in Venezuela. And she claimed that 9-11 was essentially some people did something. That was the quote, which maybe would have been sort of based if she wasn't a regime communist, but unfortunately she is. So it's a little weird that AOC was using 9-11 to defend Ilhan Omar. Now, to the Democrats, of course, none of that matters. All that matters is racism. And racism is probably what made the Republicans remove Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Intel Committee, even though they're white. And the actual reason was that Adam Schiff was lying about Intel he purportedly received in multiple efforts to take down Donald Trump and Eric Swalwell was sleeping with a Chinese spy. But for sure, it's all about racism this time. Adam Schiff joined in in speaking up for Ilhan Omar. Strong opposition to this resolution. First, as to the false pretext, two members of the Republican conference were moved from committees for inciting violence, encouraging violence against their colleagues. There is nothing at all at issue like that here. You want to introduce a resolution to condemn someone for inciting violence against their colleagues or against people here in Congress? Introduce a resolution against Donald J. Trump. No one has incited more violence against this chamber than Donald Trump. Now, let me talk about anti-Semitism. Do not, do not insult our intelligence by suggesting this is about anti-Semitism. You want to introduce a resolution against someone guilty of anti-Semitism? Introduce a resolution against someone dining with anti-Semites, someone dining with white nationalists, members of your conference who are speaking at white nationalist rallies. Introduce a resolution against Donald J. Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, and others. But do not, do not the insult our intelligence by saying this is about anti-Semitism, vote no expired. on this resolution. Now, that is a hefty portion of re. Adam Schiff is using his defense of Ilhan Omar's position on the Foreign Affairs Committee to try to go after Donald Trump for inciting violence against the Congress. The fake insurrection narrative will never die for these people. Luckily, Almost no one believes it anymore, but at least blaming Donald Trump provides a little variety from Democrat after Democrat coming up to have their one minute to talk about how racist Republicans are. They no longer have arguments for anything, just that everything is racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or Islamophobic or it incites violence or it makes people feel unsafe or it's disinformation or misinformation or malinformation. Always, always the same. Science denier, anti-vaxxer, climate denier, always the same, always nonsense. And they're finally getting treated the way they've deserved to be treated for a long, long time. 
Now, yesterday they were doing a hearing on immigration in the House and the totally open southern border, the massive flood of illegal aliens into our country, over 250,000 in December, not to mention all the fentanyl and everything else. But as you might suspect, it's racist to not want open borders. And after Democrats spent an hour arguing that they should not have to recite the Pledge of Allegiance before committee hearings, they got into calling everybody racist about immigration. But Republican Congressman Wesley Hunt was having absolutely none of it. Wesley Hunt is a black American. And what I'm about to play you is a masterclass in how this should be done. But this is actually not about race. This is actually an issue of public safety. And if I call this, if I call this an invasion, sir, I'm not racist. I can assure you I'm not racist. What I can assure you is that I want to make sure that fentanyl doesn't indiscriminately kill any race, religion, color, or creed. Because fentanyl doesn't care where you're from. Fentanyl doesn't care about race. Fentanyl kills indiscriminately. This gentleman right here works his tail off every single day to stop that from happening. Now, there's been a break in the dam, and that's pretty obvious. Because a couple of years ago, of course, we had some problems, but it wasn't amplified to the level that we are seeing every single day. And the reason why we have to be careful with what we call and what we deem racist moving forward in the future is because we stop, we stop losing, we start to lose focus on what the actual problem is. This administration, a Democrat party, unfortunately, uses race as a scapegoat for everything. And as somebody that wants to make sure that we do attack racist issues when they do occur, we can't be the boy who cried wolf and blame racism all the time. I am here to hold this administration accountable to understand that there are issues of race that need to be addressed. And sir, this ain't one of them. I applaud some of your actions in El Paso. It sounds like you're doing some great things. But I'm going to tell you, as being born and raised in Texas, living in Houston, we have a problem. And this problem has precipitated over the course of the past two years. That is a fact. I get working together. I get reaching across the aisle. But this morning, I can't believe that we had a one-hour debate over whether or not we should sing the Pledge of Allegiance before we convene every day. One hour. That, to me, is antithetical to the point of this meeting today. I implore you all to be careful with using race because your son's no longer here. And I'm sorry. There's 100,000 sons and daughters that are no longer here because of fentanyl last year. And there we have it. It cannot be more direct than that. This Democrat Party uses racism as a scapegoat for everything. And everyone who's been paying any attention at all for the last 10 or 15 years, and probably really just the whole time, knows that he's exactly right. And that's awfully strange coming from Democrats, isn't it? The party of the Confederacy, the party of slavery, the party of the KKK, the party of Jim Crow, the party of black American urban decay, and the party that went along and promoted the installation of Joe Biden as president, knowing 
that Joe Biden was mentored in politics for decades by a former Klan leader who himself filibustered the Civil Rights Act signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, a Democrat, who said upon signing it, we'll have these N-words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. That's the party who uses racism as a scapegoat for everything and always has. The congressional session is exactly what you would have expected it to be from the Democrat side. All of the squad members plus Cori Bush and whatever other Democrat people of color they could find came out to call Ilhan Omar's removal from the Foreign Affairs Committee racist. And then they all gathered into the seats directly behind the podium so they would all be in the shot the whole time, creating the perfect visual for cable news. MSNBC is probably going to run clips tonight so that they can reaffirm once again to their audience of child brains. No, no, no. Despite your party's history and your own personal preferences and the fact that right now you are supporting a Nazi army in Ukraine while denying it, you are still the party that is going to save our society from racism. Just look how much they're fighting for you. And that works great on cable news, but it doesn't work so well in real life. This is the Wall Street Journal this morning. New Jersey Councilwoman Eunice Dwumfor shot and killed in her car. A New Jersey Councilwoman was shot and killed in her car on Wednesday evening, officials said. She was 30 years old. Eunice Dwumfor, a councilwoman in Sayreville, New Jersey, located about 25 miles southwest of Newark, was identified as the victim, Governor Phil Murphy said in a statement. I am stunned by the news of Sayreville Councilwoman Eunice Dwumfor's murder last evening in an act of gun violence, Mr. Murphy said. Her career of public service was just beginning, and by all accounts, she had already built a reputation as a committed member of the borough council who took her responsibility with the utmost diligence and seriousness. The Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office and the Sayreville Police Department said in a statement Thursday that authorities received a 911 call reporting shots fired about 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Responding officers found Miss Dwumfor in her vehicle with several gunshot wounds and was pronounced dead on the scene, officials said. Victoria Kilpatrick, the mayor of the borough of Sayreville, a community with about 45,000 residents, said in a statement Thursday that Miss Dwumfor was a woman of faith and worked to integrate her Christian beliefs into her daily life as a community leader. The fact that she was taken from us by a despicable criminal act makes this incident all the more horrifying, Miss Kilpatrick said. On a personal note, I can't adequately express my feeling of sorrow at the loss of a friend. Miss Dwumfor, a Republican, was serving a two-year term that started in 2022. The criminal investigation into her death is ongoing, authorities said. Isn't that amazing? Ms. Dwumfor was a Republican, gunned down, alone, in her car, several gunshot wounds. It didn't mention this article in the Wall Street Journal didn't mention that she was a Republican until the very end. And it also turns out that she is a black American. The Wall Street Journal's tweet promoting this article also did not include the fact that she is a Republican. So a black female Republican councilwoman was clearly murdered. And it's not national news. 
Would it have been national news if it was a black Democrat woman? Well, yes, of course it would have been. And it would have been called MAGA extremist violence, whether it was or not. They would have called it that. Two days later, everyone would have realized that there was no way that was true. But by then, the story would have seeped into the minds of the general public and they would never hear the refutation of that story. So this would be just another example of MAGA extremist violence because it's not that at all. And because it's a Republican councilwoman, there is a very strong likelihood that none of those people will even hear about this story at all. ABC News reported on the murder, and in their article, it is not mentioned once that she is a Republican. They did note that she was shot while inside her white SUV, which appears to have then crashed on Samuel Circle at around 7.22 p.m. Wednesday night. So she was murdered while driving through the townhouse community where she lived. Multiple gunshots as she's driving and then the car crashes. Pretty obviously a targeted murder, but it's not a national story because it doesn't have the right political affiliations. But sure, the woman who may well have committed immigration fraud is being kicked off the Foreign Affairs Committee because of racism. That's right. It's always us. We're the racists. They can't be racists even though the entire history of their party is racism. Now, changing subjects without a segue, let's talk about Hunter Biden, the smartest man that Joe Biden knows. This is from the New York Post yesterday, Miranda Devine with a couple of co-authors. Hunter Biden finally admits infamous laptop is his as he pleads for criminal probe. So much for the laptop could be mine. And just for the reference to that quote, a little audio reminder. Was that your laptop? For real? I don't know. I know, but, but you know that. I is really a, don't know okay. if the answer is. That's you don't know yes or no if the laptop I don't have was any yours. idea. I have no idea. So could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that that was the that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. So that's Hunter Biden on CBS Sunday morning from last year, letting everyone know that the laptop could be his. It could have been stolen. It could have been hacked. It could be Russian disinformation or it could have been stolen. But it also turns out that it could just be his laptop. First son, Hunter Biden's lawyers admitted late Wednesday that the infamous laptop that the now 52 year old abandoned at a Delaware computer repair shop in the throes of his crack cocaine addiction, does indeed belong to him. The revelation came in a petulant letter from Hunter's lawyers seeking a criminal probe into what they called attempts to weaponize its contents. In the 14-page letter to Delaware Attorney General Kathy Jennings, Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, claimed that repair shop owner John Paul McIsaac unlawfully accessed Hunter's laptop data and worked with former President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to weaponize sordid and incriminating contents on it against Joe Biden. This failed dirty political trick directly resulted in the exposure, exploitation and manipulation of Mr. Biden's private and personal information, Lowell wrote. 
Mr. Mac Isaac's intentional, reckless and unlawful conduct allowed for hundreds of gigabytes of Mr. Biden's personal data without any discretion to be circulated around the Internet. MacIsaac took possession of the laptop and hard drive late in 2019 after trying and failing for months to notify Hunter that the device was ready to be picked up. Once the shop owner saw the laptop's contents, including emails detailing influence peddling involving then-Vice President Joe Biden and videos of the younger Biden smoking crack and having sex with prostitutes and his work subordinates, he alerted the FBI. The feds picked up the laptop in December 2019, but not before MacIsaac made a copy and gave it to Giuliani's personal lawyer, Robert Costello. Giuliani provided the post with a copy of the hard drive in October 2020. Lowell's letter singles out MacIsaac, Giuliani, Costello, former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon, former Trump White House aide Garrett Ziegler, Bannon associate Jack Maxey, and Yakov Applebaum founder and CEO of cyber analytics firm XR Vision and former aide to Senator Ron Johnson as parties who gained unauthorized access to the laptop's contents and disseminated it to the media and lawmakers. We believe the facts and circumstances merit further investigation as to whether the conduct of Mac Isaac, Costello, Giuliani, Bannon, Ziegler, Maxi, and Applebaum violated several provisions of Delaware's criminal code, including, but not necessarily limited to, computer-related property offenses, theft, possession of stolen property, and misapplication of another's property. Each of these offenses, if violated, has the potential to be a felony, depending on the value of the property in question, Lowell writes. Letters were also sent by Hunter Biden's lawyer on Wednesday to the Justice Department's National Security Division and the IRS. I think with Congress starting investigations next week, it's a scare tactic, McIsaac told The Post Wednesday. The flack is heaviest when you are over the target, he added. The House Oversight Committee will commence hearings next week on Hunter Biden's alleged influence peddling and claims he cashed in on ties to his then vice president father to rake in millions from foreign companies. Representative James Comer, the chairman of the panel, told the National Press Club on Monday. Ziegler, who worked as an aide to Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro, has published the laptop's data on his Marco Polo USA website, told the Post on Wednesday that the letters were a desperate attempt by the Biden family to get the spotlight away from their crimes. And of course, Garrett's right about that. With respect to the letters from the president's son pleading with his daddy's agencies to target those who expose his blatant criminality, Kevin Morris did not get a lot of bang for his buck, Ziegler told The Post, referencing Hunter Biden's fixer and quote-unquote sugar brother, Kevin Morris who allegedly lent the president's son $2 million to help pay off his overdue federal taxes and has become the architect of Hunter Biden's legal and media strategy. And Kevin Morris is the big entertainment attorney in Hollywood with a large roster of A-list clients. You'd think that Morris would spend his $1,400 plus an hour on an actual tax attorney when funding Hunter's legal misadventures, which Abby Lowell is not, Ziegler said. The letter to the IRS about Marco Polo is full of speculations and basic misunderstandings about the case law surrounding 501c3 organizations. Hopefully, federal and state investigators will see this for what it is, a desperate attempt by Hunter and his family to get the attention off of their crimes, he added. And you gotta love Garrett Ziegler, naturally. What panache!
What a plomb. Adding a portion of humor as he twists the knife ever deeper. Costello told the Post that Lowell's allegations were ridiculous and a sign of desperation. This letter is a ridiculous attempt to intimidate that will not succeed. It is the product of desperation by Hunter Biden because they know Judgment Day is coming for the Biden family, he said. Costello points out that MacIsaac has a signed work order that gives him authorization to examine the hard drive and the property is deemed legally abandoned after 90 days. It is the property of John Paul MacIsaac. McIsaac said it's no coincidence the letter from Hunter Biden's lawyer comes just as House Republicans are ready to open probes into the president's son. So two years and four months later, the Bidens finally admit that the laptop is Hunter's and was dropped off at John Paul McIsaac's computer repair shop. How about that? It is not part of a Russian disinformation campaign. It is not fake news. It was not hacked. It wouldn't fall under Twitter's hacked materials policy. It was just kept from the public because it would have been harder to sell the American public the idea that Joe Biden could actually receive 81 million real legal American votes. They couldn't let the American public know that because convincing them that Joe Biden actually won would have been that much harder. The steal would have been even more obvious than it was. Joe Biden lied about it in the debates. You just heard Hunter Biden lying about it to CBS. And now all of that can be put to bed. It's just Hunter's laptop. The evidence is real. The evidence is evidence of criminal corruption with our foreign adversaries by the fake president and his family that spans decades. Now, we were discussing some of that corruption and criminality with our adversaries yesterday and the relationship between the Bidens and Metabiota and Ukrainian biolabs. And to continue a bit further down that path, there's a great thread up from Kanakoa the Great yesterday on Twitter. And here it is. A 2012 Ukrainian news report discussed the U.S. Department of Defense building biological weapons laboratories in cities across Ukraine as part of its biological threat reduction program. And Kanakoa links that video. You can go to at Kanakoa the Great on Twitter and find this video. But as it's in Ukrainian with subtitles, there's no point in me sharing the audio. In August 2005, Senator Dick Luger and Barack Obama signed the Ukrainian Non-Luger Biological Agreement. This included cooperation agreements between the U.S. DOD and the Ukrainian Ministry of Health for the storage and elimination of deadly pathogens. Under the agreement, the U.S. will assist Ukraine to upgrade the security for pathogens currently stored at various health laboratories throughout Ukraine. The pathogens listed are anthrax, tularemia, brucellosis, listeriosis, diphtheria, cholera, typhoid, and others. President Joe Biden's son is also financially involved in Ukrainian biolabs. Hunter Biden invested in Metabiota, a pandemic tracking and response firm that collaborated on, quote, identifying and isolating deadly pathogens in Ukrainian laboratories. And he links an article from the National Pulse last year that I shared on this podcast at the time. On LinkedIn, Metabiota's David Mustra 
described how he managed a team of Ukrainians and served as, quote, the biosurveillance and research manager, end quote, on the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Cooperative Biological Engagement Program in Ukraine. Dr. Nathan Wolf, founder of Metabiota, partnered with the NIH, DOD, and EcoHealth Alliance as part of USAID's PREDICT program, which seeks to, quote, predict and prevent global emerging disease threats. In 2011, PBS did this special on the Metabiota CEO called Virus Hunters, and he links the video there. In April 2014, Metabiota Vice President Mary Gutierrez wrote a memo to Hunter outlining how they could, quote, assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia, end quote. Wow. 2014, they were trying to assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia. And that's the same time at which Biden and Obama and associates who are still in the fake administration now, like Victoria Newland, were plotting to overthrow and overthrowing Ukraine's government. And they were going to assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia. And not long after that, Ukraine lost Crimea to Russia. Gosh, these Bidens, just foreign policy geniuses. An unusual goal for a DOD contractor specializing in pandemic-causing pathogens. It is, isn't it? How are those things connected? In another April 2014 email, Burisma executive Vadim Pozarsky wrote to Hunter, revealing that the then vice president's son had pitched a, quote, science project involving Burisma and Metabiota. Burisma infamously paid Hunter $83,000 a month to sit on its board. Hunter was not only involved in Ukrainian biolabs. In fact, his actual boss at Burisma Holdings, the Ukrainian oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky, was also the boss of Volodymyr Zelensky before he became Ukraine's president. What a coincidence, right? And we talked about Kolomoisky being raided yesterday. Who knows where that raid is coming from, what that raid is intended to do. Are they taking down Kolomoisky? Is someone covering up evidence? We'll discuss that more in a bit. Zelensky achieved national fame, portraying a president on a hit television sitcom called Servant of the People, which was broadcast on a TV network owned by Ihor Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky provided security, lawyers, and vehicles for Zelensky's presidential campaign. The Pandora Papers revealed that Volodymyr Zelensky was the beneficiary of a web of offshore firms created in 2012. That same year, Zelensky's production company entered into a deal with Kolomoisky's media group and received $41 million from Kolomoisky's Privat Bank. A 2012 study of Burisma Holdings by Antac, a nonprofit funded by George Soros and the State Department, found that the owner of Burisma Holdings was Ihor Kolomoisky, meaning Hunter Biden and Volodymyr Zelensky worked for the same Ukrainian oligarch. Now, that is shocking. Also shocking, why is there a nonprofit that's funded by George Soros and the State Department? Oh, good. Another public-private partnership. Russian media quoted in State Department emails referred to Burisma as, quote, part of Kolomoisky's financial empire. Kolomoisky had a, quote-unquote, controlling interest in Burisma Holdings. Kolomoisky also funded the Azov, Adar, and Dnipro battalions. 
accused of shelling children and war crimes in eastern Ukraine. Human Rights Watch reported that Kolomoisky's battalions indiscriminately used unguided rockets and cluster munitions on populated areas in Donetsk. Crazy, isn't it, that Human Rights Watch is saying the same things that all of us have said for the last year, all of the things that our global state propaganda media tells us the Russians are doing? The Ukrainians have been doing this, by the way, for nine years now. On the text messages found in the Biden laptop, Hunter asks Hallie if she believed that he had, quote, children burned alive in Donetsk or, quote, children killed in Donetsk, Ukraine, likely referring to reports of Kolomoisky's war crimes in eastern Ukraine. So Hallie Biden is Bo Biden's widow, Bo Biden being Hunter Biden's brother. Hallie Biden and Hunter Biden started a relationship that mostly consisted of sex and smoking crack. And then Hunter started a relationship with his brother's widow's sister as well. A lot of class in that family. This text message is one of the most damning things on Hunter Biden's laptop, in my opinion. Hunter Biden is asking his brother's widow, who he's in a close relationship with, whether or not she really believes that he is involved with having children burned alive in Donetsk and children killed in Donetsk, Ukraine. And it's worth remembering that Sam Harris said in his own words that he did not care if there was evidence of dead bodies in Hunter Biden's basement on that laptop. It was still so important that that laptop be hidden to make it harder for Donald Trump to win. In 2020, the DOJ accused Ihor Kolomoisky of laundering $4 billion from his Privat bank into American properties, meaning Joe Biden sent Ukraine $100 billion with Zelensky, Kolomoisky, and his son Hunter all tied to money laundering and offshore banking in Ukraine. So a great thread by Kanakoa the Great. He links to the thread we discussed yesterday by Clandestine and then our good friend, John Harold Patel Patriot himself followed up with another thread expanding on Kanakoa's thread today. He says a few more interesting things to add to the thread by Kanakoa. Recall that one of Russia's stated goals with their special military operation is to denazify Ukraine. This Russian embassy statement specifically listed Azov, the Kolomoisky funded slash founded group. And he cites a statement from the Russian embassy. The statement reads, Russia continues its special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. The Russian army does not occupy Ukrainian territory and takes all measures to preserve the lives and safety of civilians. The strikes are targeting military facilities only, being carried out exclusively with high precision weapons. We are witnessing an unprecedented wave of lies, fake news, distorted and fabricated facts aiming at discrediting our actions. Goebbels-style Western propaganda was predictable. It cannot be trusted. The public in Canada should understand that. And I should have noted this. This is the embassy of the Russian Federation in Canada writing this statement. The truth is different. Crimes against humanity and violations of international humanitarian law are committed by the armed forces of Ukraine and such neo-Nazi groups as Azov, Right Sector, and others. The multiple evidence is available in open sources. 
The Ukrainian side is deploying multiple launch rocket systems and artillery in the courtyards of residential buildings, hospitals, schools, and kindergartens. The armed forces of Ukraine, nationalist and neo-Nazi groups, use civilian infrastructure and population as human shields. And again, that's true. And even the globalist leftist Human Rights Watch admits to it. It is essential to understand the rationale behind these actions. The Ukrainian authorities and its Western patrons are committing monstrous and inhuman provocations in order to put all the blame on Russia. In fact, the full responsibility for the destruction and innocent victims lies with the regime in Kiev. The Russian army is fighting neither Ukraine nor the Ukrainians. The tasks to clear Ukraine of Nazism and to demilitarize it will be accomplished. Those responsible for genocide and eight years long war started by Kiev against its own people, silently watched and frequently encouraged by the West, will be brought to justice. Russia is not starting wars. Russia is ending them. And that was from March 1st, 2022, 11 months ago. John goes on. In July of 2014, during the color revolution, it was reported these Nazi groups were committing war crimes. Kolomoisky is listed as funding many of them. Russia also issued a warrant for Kolomoisky's arrest. Then we have the Durham connection to Ukraine and the timing of that revelation to Trump's quote unquote perfect phone call. We know the Clinton Foundation was taking money from Ukrainian oligarchs. It's obvious they were not the only ones from the Obama administration doing so. And he posts an excerpt. Then there's the Clintons who received millions from Ukrainians over the years in donations to their family foundation. From 2009 to 2013, the Clinton Foundation received at least $8.6 million from the Viktor Pinchuk Foundation, which is headquartered in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, the Wall Street Journal reported. In 2008, Pinchuk pledged a five-year, $29 million commitment to the Clinton Global Initiative for a program to train future Ukrainian leaders to, quote, modernize Ukraine. He goes on. The day after Durham assumes aspects of the Huber investigation into the Clinton Foundation, it's reported by the DOJ that Durham is working with members of the Ukrainian government regarding Ukraine's role in the counterintel investigation into the Trump campaign. So what we know, Kolomoisky stole $4.5 billion from Privat Bank between 2006 and 2015, most of the Obama era. Kolomoisky owned Burisma. Hunter made $83,000 per month as Burisma board member. Joe Biden had the prosecutor investigating Burisma fired. Kolomoisky funded and supported Zelensky. Kolomoisky funded and founded Azov. Russia specifically listed Azov as an enemy in their operation to denazify Ukraine. Russia had a warrant out for Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky has now been raided in Ukraine. How does Kolomoisky, an ally of Zelensky and with connections to the Bidens and their corruption, end up being raided? Seems like a contradiction. The timing of this during the Biden classified document scandal is fascinating, too. Remember this thread I did leading me to believe that David Weiss's investigation into Hunter is what sparked the Biden doc saga. The most logical explanation for a continued doc search is those docs are being subpoenaed. And we have discussed the possibility that this document extravaganza is rooted in the David Weiss investigation of Hunter Biden and Biden family criminality in Delaware. This has also been noted by Kash Patel. Leaves me with this question, says John. 
is the Weiss investigation into Hunter's business dealings, which likely uncovered the use of classified docs connected to the raid on Kolomoisky. The Burisma connection can't be ignored. Something fishy is going on here, and I think he's right. Now let's move a little further into the Ukraine conflict. This is from thecradle.co. And this article is written by Pepe Escobar, who is a fantastic independent journalist when it comes to foreign affairs and geopolitics. The headline, a panicked empire tries to make Russia an offer it can't refuse. Those behind the throne are never more dangerous than when they have their backs against the wall. Their power is slipping away fast. Militarily, via NATO's progressive humiliation in Ukraine, financially, sooner rather than later, most of the global South will want nothing to do with the currency of a bankrupt rogue giant. Politically, the global majority is taking decisive steps to stop obeying a rapacious, discredited, de facto minority. So now those behind the throne are plotting to at least try to stall the incoming disaster on the military front. As confirmed by a high-level U.S. establishment source, a new directive on NATO versus Russia in Ukraine was relayed to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Blinken, in terms of actual power, is nothing but a messenger boy for the Straussian neocons and neoliberals who actually run U.S. foreign policy. And of course, he's referring to the regime's uniparty communist members. The Secretary of State was instructed to relay the new directive, a sort of message to the Ukraine, via mainstream print media, which was promptly published by the Washington Post. In the elite U.S. mainstream media division of labor, the New York Times is very close to the State Department and the Washington Post to the CIA. In this case, though, the directive was too important and needed to be relayed by the paper of record in the imperial capital. It was published as an op-ed behind the paywall. The novelty here is that for the first time since the start of Russia's February 2022 special military operation in Ukraine, the Americans are actually proposing a variation of the offer you can't refuse classic, including some concessions which may satisfy Russia's security imperatives. Crucially, the U.S. offer totally bypasses Kiev, once again certifying that this is a war against Russia conducted by Empire and its NATO minions with the Ukrainians as mere expendable proxies. And that is a very good point. The regime in Kyiv, led by the comedic actor, is a puppet regime. He has no actual autonomy or control. And the only question is, at this point, who exactly is pulling the comedic actor's strings? Because with the level he's embarrassed the regime to this point, you actually have to start wondering if the regime aren't the ones pulling those strings. Or hey, they could be. Maybe they think that Volodymyr Zelensky is just wowing all of America because that's how it looks inside their Twitter bubble. The Washington Post's old school Moscow-based correspondent, John Helmer, has provided an important service offering the full text of Blinken's offer of course, extensively edited to include fantasist notions such as, quote, U.S. weapons help pulverize Putin's invasion force, end quote, and a cringeworthy explanation, quote, in other words, Russia should not be ready to rest, regroup and attack. The message from Washington may at first glance give the impression that the U.S. would admit Russian control over Crimea, Donbass, Zaporozhye and Kherson, quote, the land bridge that connects Crimea and Russia as a fait accompli. 
Ukraine would have a demilitarized status and the deployment of HIMAR missiles and Leopard and Abrams tanks would be confined to Western Ukraine, kept as a deterrent against further Russian attacks. What may have been offered in quite hazy terms is in fact a partition of Ukraine, demilitarized zone included in exchange for the Russian general staff canceling its yet unknown 2023 offensive, which may be as devastating as cutting off Kiev's access to the Black Sea and or cutting off the supply of NATO weapons across the Polish border. The U.S. offer denies itself as the path towards a, quote, just and durable peace that upholds Ukraine's territorial integrity, end quote. Well, not really. It just won't be a rump Ukraine, and Kiev might even retain those Western lands that Poland is dying to gobble up. The possibility of a direct Washington-Moscow deal on an eventual post-war military balance is also evoked, including no Ukraine membership of NATO. As for Ukraine itself, the Americans seem to believe it will be a strong, non-corrupt economy with membership in the European Union. Whatever remains of value in Ukraine has already been swallowed not only by its monumentally corrupt oligarchy, but most of all, investors and speculators of the BlackRock variety. Assorted corporate vultures simply cannot afford to lose Ukraine's grain export ports, as well as the trade deal terms agreed with the EU before the war. And they're terrified that the Russian offensive may capture Odessa, the major seaport and transportation hub on the Black Sea, which would leave Ukraine landlocked. There's no evidence whatsoever that Russian President Vladimir Putin and the entire Russian Security Council, including its secretary Nikolai Petrushev and deputy chairman Dmitry Medvedev, have reason to believe anything coming from the U.S. establishment especially via mere minions such as Blinken and the Washington Post. After all, the Stavka, a moniker for the high command of the Russian armed forces, regard the Americans as, quote, non-agreement capable, even when an offer is in writing. This walks and talks like a desperate U.S. gambit to stall and present some carrots to Moscow in the hope of delaying or even canceling the planned offensive of the next few months. Even old school dissident Washington operatives, not beholden to the Straussian neocon galaxy, bet that the gambit will be a nothing burger. In classic strategic ambiguity mode, the Russians will continue on their stated drive of demilitarization, denazification, and deelectrification, and will stop anytime and anywhere they see fit east of the Dnieper or beyond. Washington's ambitions in this essentially NATO versus Russia war go well beyond Ukraine. And we're not even talking about preventing a Russia, China, Germany, Eurasian Union or a peer competitor nightmare. Let's stick with the prosaic issues on the Ukrainian battleground. The key recommendations, military, economic, political, diplomatic, were detailed in an Atlantic Council strategy paper last year. And in another one under War Scenario One, the war continues in its current tempo. We find the Straussian neocon policy fully spelled out. It's all here. From marshalling support and military assistance transfers to Kiev, sufficient to enable it to win, to increase the lethality of military assistance transferred to include fighter aircraft that would enable Ukraine to control its airspace and attack Russian forces therein, and missile technology with range sufficient to reach into Russian territory. From training the Ukrainian military, quote, 
to use Western weapons, electronic warfare, and offensive and defensive cyber capabilities, and to seamlessly integrate new recruits into the service, end quote, to buttressing, quote, defenses on the front lines near the Donbass region, end quote, including, quote, combat training focusing on irregular warfare, end quote. Adding to, quote, imposing secondary sanctions on all entities doing business with the Kremlin, end quote, we reach, of course, the mother of all plunders, quote, confiscate the $300 billion that the Russian state holds in overseas accounts in the United States and EU and use seized monies to fund reconstruction. Oh, the Russians are going to love that. The reorganization of the special military operation with Putin, chief of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov and General Armageddon in their new enhanced roles is derailing all these elaborate plans. The Straussians are now in deep panic. Even Blinken's number two, Russophobic warmonger Victoria F. the EU Newland has admitted to the U.S. Senate that there will be no Abrams tanks on the battlefield before spring, realistically, only in 2024. She also promised to, quote, ease sanctions if Moscow returns to negotiations. Those negotiations were scotched by the Americans themselves in Istanbul in the spring of 2022. Newland also called on the Russians to withdraw their troops. Well, at least that offers some comic relief compared with the panic oozing from Blinken's offer you can't refuse. Stay tuned for Russia's non-response response. So as we heard from Colonel McGregor yesterday, Russia has a dominant and unshakable position in Ukraine and the U.S. and its regime allies are beginning to understand that their efforts in Ukraine have been a failure and will continue to be a failure, and now they're just trying to keep whatever they can. And that effort will very likely fail as well. Now, adjacent to the Ukraine situation, let's go to this incredible piece from the Gray Zone. They actually do amazing work there. This is from today, the headline, Suspicions of State Security Setup in Germany's Far-Right Coup. Now, that sounds familiar. That sounds kind of like January 6th. That sounds kind of like January 8th in Brazil. And it sounds kind of like the Reichstag fire in Germany. A massive police raid foiled extremist plans to topple Germany's government. But the timing of the plot and its sheer absurdity raised questions about state security's role in instigating it, as it has done many times in the past. On the morning of December 7th, 2022, Germany's security forces conducted the largest police raid in their history as 3,000 officers stormed 130 properties spanning almost the entire country, as well as Austria and Italy. When the police sweep was over, 25 individuals had been arrested for plotting to overthrow the German government. They stood accused of plotting to storm parliament, arrest lawmakers, and declare the restoration of the country's monarchy by force, led by aristocrat Heinrich Reich the 13th. However, a closer examination of the police action and its timing raises serious questions about the legitimacy of the alleged coup and whether the German security state played a role in instigating it. If so, it would fit within the historical pattern of the government's infiltration of extremist movements since the post-war period. In 2003, a German court was forced to abandon a case against a notorious neo-Nazi group when it determined the organization was at least partially, if not wholly, 
controlled by state assets. The suspects accused of plotting to overthrow Germany's government are part of a movement known as Reichsburger or the citizens of the Reich. This group is said to reject the legitimacy of the Federal Republic of Germany and contends the country is not, in fact, a sovereign state, but a corporation created by the U.S. and Britain after World War II. Well, that's very interesting. Where would they get that idea? I wonder if the U.S. is a corporation of Britain, too. That's just one striking aspect of an event so shot through with farcical elements and headline clickbait It appears to have been custom made to generate media frenzy. A celebrity gourmet chef recruited to, quote, take over the canteens of the new German Reich, end quote, is among those arrested, as is a former member of parliament of the right wing Alternative for Deutschland party. So is a Russian citizen, the girlfriend of Royce, who reportedly contacted Moscow's embassy in Germany to discuss a new post-coup world order. Authorities had clearly set out to court intense news interest, inviting packs of journalists to document the raids in real time, therefore ensuring outlets across the world were almost instantly plastered with photos of the plotters being escorted away handcuffed. In all, 125 officers were deployed for each suspect taken in for questioning, an obviously extraordinary excessive ratio. Given the speed with which German news outlets such as Der Spiegel published detailed, lengthy reports on the raids. Some have even suggested certain articles were prepared in advance of the police swoop and that journalists and editors had been awaiting the day for some time. Eerily, in a since-deleted tweet on December 6th, ARD journalist George Heil fortuitously predicted, quote, I suspect there will be a lot of exclusive news tomorrow, end quote. Numerous government officials have aggressively pushed the line that the plotters, quote, are not harmless, crazy people, end quote. And the media has treated the putsch with utmost seriousness. However, the German state broadcaster Deutsche Welle has conceded that Reichsberger did not even have a remotely realistic prospect of overthrowing the government. More generally, DW acknowledged a coup d'etat could, quote, hardly succeed in Germany as the state order and the constitution are too solid. End quote. Though only a handful of weapons were seized in the police raids, Interior Minister Nancy Faser has declared Germany's already strict gun laws will be tightened even further in response to the supposedly thwarted insurrection. It is almost certain Berlin's security and intelligence services will be granted enhanced capabilities to surveil and harass citizens and suppress unrest, too, given they are highly opportunistic in criminalizing dissent at politically expedient junctures. In April 2021, as the German government prepared to impose harsher pandemic restrictions in the face of staunch opposition from the public and a plurality of political parties across the political spectrum, Berlin's domestic security service, known as the Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz, or BFV, established a new dedicated monitoring category for lockdown opponents. The agency argued that opposition to lockdown orders represented a subversive threat to the state, but that it did not fall under pre-existing categories of concern, such as the far right, far left, or Islamic terrorism. The move effectively outlawed all anti-lockdown agitation in Germany while classifying anyone arrested for such activity, of which there had at that point been thousands, 
despite Germany's constitutional court ruling a year earlier that COVID-19 restrictions did not extend to demonstrations, would be guilty of extremist endeavors. It also guaranteed expanded powers and bureaucratic resources guaranteed to the BFV, which put them on display this December when it took down the Reichsburger's supposed insurrection plot. And I hope by now you have in mind something that I talk about continuously, which is that the same playbook and the same stories are playing out all across the world, different places, different times. But it's the same narrative always for the same reasons. And they try to put in the same, if not similar, political measures like gun restrictions in the aftermath of all these events that they are responsible for creating. The German media's preponderant focus on the Reichsberger plotter's purported far-right nature is striking, as the BFV calculates that of the estimated 21,000 adherents in Germany, of whom only around 5% are right-wing extremists. These figures might seem unusually specific, but the BFV is well-placed to know them with a high degree of certainty. Indeed, the agency's surveillance and infiltration of Germany's far right is so extensive, the movement has been at least partially run and even funded by the state. This disturbing reality was laid bare in January 2001, when all branches of the German government requested that Berlin's federal constitutional court investigate the ultra-nationalist National Democratic Party and determine whether it was unconstitutional. Their intent was to ban the party outright. And that's interesting because the comedic actor in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, has banned opposition political parties in Ukraine as well. Very sad because Ukraine up until then was part of our democracy. The resultant probe collapsed in 2003 after the Constitutional Court determined many NPD members and grandees, including at least 30 of its most prominent figures, were undercover agents or informants of the BFV. Moreover, much of the government's case against the party was based on statements made and works published by individuals on the agency's payroll. An anti-Semitic MPD pamphlet that featured prominently in evidence provided to the court was, for example, authored by an undercover operative. This might as well be Julie Kelly reporting about the fake plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer or Darren Beatty reporting about the Fed surrection on January 6th, 2021. As a result, the court ruled it was impossible to ascertain which statements, publications, and actions attributed to the party had been influenced by the BFV. Investigators speculated the MPD's activities may have been deliberately and actively directed by the agency in support of the party's prescription. Gosh, they sound exactly like the FBI. This explanation is highly implausible given the fact that renewed calls for the NPD's ban in 2011 were dismissed by the BFV on the grounds that doing so would necessitate deactivating its 130 strong network of informants in the party, half of them neo-Nazis, who provided invaluable intelligence on a number of secretive right-wing movements. And that's a kind of amazing dynamic, isn't it? And one that we have seen with the FBI here. They need to keep the FBI informants in these groups and running these groups because without the FBI informants there, they wouldn't have the information from these groups that very probably would not exist without the FBI. 
That's the explanation we've gotten here. And that's the explanation that was given to the German people as well. It is similarly implausible then that, as the established narrative of the coup asserts, the plotters only came to the BFV's attention for the first time in April this year, following the arrest of four members of United Patriots, a Reichsberger subgroup. They were allegedly conspiring to destroy power stations to cause a nationwide blackout and kidnap Health Minister Karl Lauterbach. Reichsberger had been on the BFV's radar for years. In March 2020, after a shooting in Hanau that left nine migrants dead, Germany's central government proscribed the group and several of its members were arrested. The extremist outfit featured prominently in the BFV's 2021 annual report, as did the COVID skeptical Querdenken movement, to which the plotters were also linked. The latter was specifically cited by the BFV in its official justification for creating a new monitoring category for lockdown opponents. So I guess if you can't actively insert members of the security service into one of these groups, this group, of course, being decentralized, people who are just opponents of lockdowns, then what you need to do is legalize ways to monitor them even more than average citizens, and of course, for their political beliefs. As such, the coup conspirators were irrefutably connected to an array of groups officially confirmed to be under intensive surveillance by the BFV. These outfits would have thus been heavily penetrated by agents and informants reporting on their members every move. In the case of the AFD party, its designation as a suspected extremist group means the private communications of anyone connected to it are rigorously recorded and stored. The aristocratic Reichsberger leader Royce and his confederates supposedly became subjects of interest to the BFV after the arrests of its United Patriot subgroup members. Very early on, according to agency president Thomas Haldenwang, the BFV, quote, had a very clear view of their plans, end quote. Authorities had closely monitored their communications and contacts from that point on, gathering intelligence on the wider network in which they operated and built cases against them. If they truly posed a serious immediate threat to Germany's constitutional order or their plans to do so were well-developed and nearing fruition, actions surely could have been taken much earlier. Haldenwang claims the BFV watched in real time as the plot, quote, became more and more concrete and weapons were procured, end quote. The question of whether BFV provocateurs encouraged and or assisted any of the conspirators in advancing their insurrectionist fantasies over this period remains an open and obvious one. After all, the eight months in which the plot developed provided ample time to insert agents into a group or recruit them. One of the most remarkable aspects of the coup is how quickly it vanished from the headlines after the initial series of raids. After a surge of minute by minute reporting, an event of purportedly seismic historic significance declared by Bloomberg columnist Andreas Kluth to represent Berlin averting the establishment of a Fourth Reich has ceased to be of any interest at all to mainstream journalists, including those within Germany itself. And the headline that is shared in this article from Andreas Kluth is Germany just averted its own January 6th and maybe the Fourth Reich. And isn't that amazing? It's not a conspiracy theory to say that the same things are happening all over the world. The same playbook is being used. The same narratives are being used 
It's just different places at different times. Their very violent insurrection plot set up by the state is the same as our very violent insurrection plot set up by the state. And of course, we were trying to overthrow the government because we are the Nazis, not the people actually staging the Reichstag fire all around the world over and over and over again. After such a terrifying event in which Germany was supposedly saved from the second coming of Hitler, it seemed reasonable to expect more lurid details about the conspirators grand design. At the very least, some of the promised arrests of other members of the extremist cell should have materialized by now. But save for a series of closed door Bundestag sessions on December 12th, during which it was claimed the plotters had dreamed of creating 200 paramilitary units tasked with arresting and executing people after the government's overthrow, authorities have remained markedly tight lipped since December 7th. As is their nature, established news outlets have followed the state's lead, letting the coup drop from its radar almost entirely. The media's sudden disinterest in the Reichsberger plot recalls another supposed far-right coup conspiracy in Germany. In April 2017, the country was deluged with reports of a 28-year-old Bundeswehr soldier known as Franco A., who had been arrested for planning to carry out violent attacks on German politicians, activists, and journalists. Portrayed as a leading member of a far-right terror group, Nordkreuz, Franco A. supposedly registered as a Syrian refugee with German authorities in December 2015. His purported intent was to deliberately leave his fingerprints at the scenes of serious crimes in the hope they would be blamed on his Syrian persona and thereby trigger nationwide violent backlash against immigrants across the nation. Authorities later declared that investigations into Franco A. revealed he was but one component of a much wider plot among Germany's elite special forces command to achieve day X, whereupon they would abduct and execute a variety of German politicians. The case prompted international outcry, as well as widespread public debate about the degree to which Bundeswehr had been infected with dangerous, revolutionary, far-right sentiment. However, the official inquiry ultimately amounted to nothing. In November 2017, six months after his arrest, Franco A. was released from custody as Berlin's federal court ruled, quote, the results so far of the investigation do not substantiate the strong suspicion that a serious act threatening the state was in preparation, end quote. It's crazy how all of these plots eventually fall apart, isn't it? A police raid three months earlier on KSK headquarters similarly failed to unearth any indication of subversive intentions or activities among its operatives. Concluding that absence of evidence was not evidence of absence, Police speculated the command had been tipped off in advance and promptly charged a soldier known as Peter W., who they accused of secretly leading far-right group Hannibal with helping the suspects cover their tracks. Peter W. was duly acquitted in March 2019 and apparently continues to serve in the German armed forces to this day. He successfully argued in court that Social Democratic Party supporters within Germany's Ministry of Justice grossly exaggerated and distorted his case in order to embarrass the ruling CDU-led government for reasons of electoral expediency. Meanwhile, Nordkreutz's putative leader and founder, a veteran police sniper and shooting instructor known as Marco G., 
was given a suspended sentence of 21 months in December that year. Despite guns and ammunition being found at his home, the arsenal was ruled to be largely legal, and several unconstitutional comments he made in a private group chat neither implied he intended to overthrow the government nor carry out terrorist attacks. Franco A. was eventually sentenced to five and a half years in prison for possession of illegal weapons and fraud in July 2022. No concrete evidence of a concerted effort, let alone desire to overthrow the German government on his part, has ever materialized. In the meantime, the KSK was reorganized and partially disbanded due to the purported level of far-right extremism within its ranks, although no further arrests were made. The specter of a secret fascist nexus hell-bent on seizing power in Berlin through incendiary violence is one German authorities, politicians, and journalists have long been eager to conjure. While there can be little doubt that modern Germany is home to an inordinate number of neo-Nazis and fascists, at least some of whom are violent and dangerous, they stand little to no chance of threatening the country's constitutional order. It is also true that these extremist forces are well represented in the military and security services. In November 2018, BFV chief Hans-Georg Maassen was fired for disseminating racist conspiracy theories. At the time, it was speculated his political views may have led the agency to turn a blind eye to the activities of the country's far right during his six-year tenure. Maassen's predecessor, Heinz Fromm, also departed in disgrace after it was revealed that the BFV shredded files related to the National Socialist Underground, a neo-Nazi terrorist group which carried out murders, bank robberies, and bombings across Germany with impunity for a decade. Now, that's weird. Because we're always told that Nazis and fascists are right wing, even though we're also told that Nazi means national socialist. And we also have this neo-Nazi group, the National Socialist Underground. It's strange that after 80 years, the neo-Nazis in Germany haven't realized that they're right wing and not socialist. Man, where are they getting their history from? We should really send an MSNBC host over to Germany to educate these neo-Nazis about how Nazism and fascism are actually right-wing ideologies. They must be confused because obviously it can't be that we were lied to by our educational system and by the people on TV. That just, that doesn't make sense. Questions abound to this day over whether the NSU was actively protected from investigation and captured by the BFV state security services. It also remains unclear why one of the agency's staff, referred to by fellow spooks as Little Adolf for his far-right views, haha, <laughs> far-right, was present at the scene of one of the group's killings. What has been confirmed is that the NSU were in direct regular contact with many BFV informants and indirectly received agency funds through the German state security organization. This was hardly the first time that right-wing terrorists have managed to get away with literal murder in Europe. Throughout the Cold War, British and American spies in conjunction with NATO managed a network of secret fascist armies who committed countless violent criminal acts as part of a strategy of tension designed to discredit the left and justify ever greater security measures. In Italy, this connivance was known as Operation Gladio. And the Gray Zone, for all its many wonderful qualities, 
could use some brushing up on what the right left political spectrum actually is so that they stop saying these silly things. But it is interesting to note that British and American spies with NATO were managing a network of secret fascist armies. That's so, so strange because we were told that the regime globalists are anti-fascist and that, in fact, they're the ones who defeated the Nazis. Strange how this happens, isn't it? I actually discuss this very issue at length in an essay on the Substack called The Sides of History. You can read it there, and I believe that the audio version of that is also posted on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. Many terrorist attacks carried out during this period either remain officially unsolved or the likely perpetrators have never been brought to justice. Gladio operative Vincenzo Vinciguerra, jailed for life for a car bombing that killed three police officers and injured two, in later years explained why and laid bare the, quote, strategy of tension in stark detail. You were supposed to attack civilians, women, children, innocent people from outside the political arena. The reason was simple. Force the public to turn to the state and ask for greater security. People would willingly trade their freedom for the security of being able to walk the streets, go on trains, or enter a bank. This was the political logic behind the bombings. They remain unpunished because the state cannot condemn itself. And boy, oh boy, if that doesn't bring back memories of the summer of love from 2020. Vinciguerra's words resonate strongly against the backdrop of the recent Reichsberger coup, as the supposed plot could not have come at a more opportune time for the German government. Throughout 2022, officials in Berlin openly angsted about the prospect of mass upheaval due to spiraling living and energy costs. Though scarcely reported in mainstream media, large-scale protests have grown in size and frequency. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has dubbed the situation, quote, a powder keg for society. It is not unlikely that the country will fall into a deep grinding recession in the near future. Some analysts have predicted its eventual deindustrialization. Public approval of Schultz's administration is already flagging significantly. Conversely, AFD, which opposes arming Ukraine and sanctioning Russia, has reached near record levels in the polls and is on course to come first in several state elections in 2024. Isn't that amazing. We are told that all of these NATO allies, all of these EU allies, all of the countries that represent the evil twin faction, the global regime, wherever that faction is in power, we are told that all of them support Ukraine. And we are led to believe that the people of these countries support Ukraine as well. Except that's clearly not true. It is just the regime. It is just the elites. And among the people, it's just those who are still totally addicted to the global state propaganda media and the central narrative they disseminate. With Western governments no longer able to exploit the COVID-19 pandemic to crush dissent, rally citizens behind unpopular administrations, and expand systems of surveillance and social control, intelligence services throughout Europe and North America are again ramping up fears of terrorism to terrify their populations into submission, this time in the form of domestic far-right elements. 
If German spies had wished to concoct a false flag terror plot that achieved maximum visual and political impact and without any risk to national security, the coup they so heroically busted on December 7th could not have been better conceived. And let's read that second to last paragraph just one more time. But think about this in America and think about how the very violent insurrection was used. With Western governments no longer able to exploit the COVID-19 pandemic to crush dissent, rally citizens behind unpopular administrations, and expand systems of surveillance and social control, intelligence services throughout Europe and North America are again ramping up fears of terrorism to terrify their populations into submission, this time in the form of domestic far-right elements. And so there you have it, my fellow domestic terrorists. Is it a conspiracy theory that the evil twin global regime factions within these countries are breathing life into and organizing these so-called extremist groups and orchestrating these so-called terrorist plots? No, it's just the same color revolution playbook playing out around the world over and over and over again to implement the global political agenda. And this is finally breaking through into the mainstream, even in America. Last night, Tucker Carlson had the leftist comedian Jimmy Dore come on his show to talk about these global war efforts. And it's notable because Tucker is the only person on all of cable news who would actually host this conversation. Jimmy Dore mentions that himself today on Twitter, noting that ABC News and The Washington Post and CNN and MSNBC None of them actually want to talk to him. But here he is on Tucker Carlson last night. We're the ones provoking this war, just like we provoked the war in Ukraine. We are now provoking a war with China. And what? who, who benefits? I'll tell you right now. Your enemy is not China. Your enemy is not Russia. Your enemy is the military-industrial complex, which has been fleecing this country to the tunes of hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. How many times are we going to have a defense secretary say, hey, we can't account for $2 trillion in the Pentagon again, That like, which has happened twice now in my life? lifetime. So again, people are being, uh, uh, the, the war machine cannot be stopped. Who's running this country? The war machine. It certainly isn't Joe Biden making these decisions. I would like to know who is making the decisions. And I just want to remind everybody, the United States is the world's terrorist. We just set the Middle East on fire in the last 20 years. And now we're doing a proxy war in Ukraine, which we provoked, NATO provoked, and it was just admitted that we provoked it by the former prime minister of Germany. And now we're trying to saber rattle with, with China and they're predicting a war. Again, China's not going to invade us. China's not our enemy. They, we might have an economic war. That's what these are. These are economic wars. These are wars right. for in Ukraine. It's about liquefied natural gas and making sure Germany and Russia never come together because we fear Russia's uh, natural resources and manpower. And we fear them getting together with Germany with their technology and their capital. And so that's why we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. That's why we're doing the Ukraine war. This is all about hegemony, imperialism and economics. And if there's a Marine somewhere, it's there because they're about to steal some natural resources from another country. As everybody's screaming about what a bad guy Putin is for invading Ukraine, the United States is currently occupying a third of Syria. And which third is that? It's the third that has the oil. And how do I know we're there to steal their oil? Because the president of the United States said so. Isn't it amazing 
that we are the right wing extremists, the right wing domestic terrorists. And we are also the people who do not want civil war in the United States and do not want proxy wars around the world to protect regime corruption. We are the anti-war party simply by being America first and valuing peace through strength rather than the United States as a global police force for the regime. Jimmy Dore is not on the right, and he's not just some peacenik hippie spouting anti-war nonsense about geopolitical issues he doesn't understand. He is simply cutting through the web of lies and corruption that put us in these situations in the first place. And he mentions the one that comes next. The one that comes next is Taiwan. And China is going to invade Taiwan, which is impossible because Taiwan is part of China. And I'll leave you with this. An interesting moment in a committee hearing yesterday. The House Rules Committee yeah, held a hearing, held a hearing on today. Tuesday, Mika. What happened there? Oh, it was on Tuesday to debate a non-binding resolution that would broadly condemn socialism. Oh, boy. Good. One Republican Good. congressman tried to make a dramatic point in mm -hmm. getting Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters to condemn mm -hmm. authoritarian leaders. Take a look at how that worked out for him. But Ranking Member Waters, I would think that this would be the most bipartisan bill. And the fact that this isn't passing on suspension just says everything about my friends across the aisle, that you can't condemn socialism. I mean, in your opening remarks, you were talking about Putin, Kim Jong-un, and, and Z. You know what they all have in common, right? Trump. <laughs> Trump? <laughs> North, North Korea, China, and Russia? He loves Yes, yes. Where has he been for the past six has years? He been, has he been? Oh, my God. That is, I mean, I'm oh, sorry. Good. That is like, that is like slamming the, the ball in the basket and breaking the, 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 the glass back Then throwing the mic down and walking that, away. That was amazing, Willie. And she's and exactly right. I mean, why? where's this guy been, this member of Congress? He, he talks about a guy. Uh, that that what what does what do these people have in common? Uh, Putin, uh, Donald Trump says is brilliant for mm -hmm. invading, uh, and, and talks about how smart and he's a great strong leader. Remember, he said that back in 2015, December 2015, on our show that he yep. was a strong leader that he really respected even after he brought Vladimir up Putin. Sassy. Vladimir Putin. So Trump loved him. Of course, we, we know how what he felt about the dictator in North Korea with his love, love letters. letters. And with President Xi, uh, he guaranteed America that President Xi was going to be wonderful during COVID and they're cooperating with us and China is wonderful. They're cooperating. They also had some wonderful chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago together. Yes, that's right. And they wrote, don't forget the love letters uh, between yeah. the president and Kim Jong-un. I mean, yeah. how did the, how did Congressman yeah. think that was going to go <laughs> exactly? Was Maxine Waters <laughs> going to defend Kim Jong-un? I don't think so. Not only yeah. did he put it on a tee, he gave Congresswoman Waters that big red bat that you use where you can't miss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the trained seals at MSNBC are barking about anti-Maxine and how she totally slammed Donald Trump. It is interesting, though, because we're seeing the narrative seeding of what will become the attempt by the mainstream media, the global state propaganda media, to tie Donald Trump to Xi Jinping as he invades Taiwan. That's what you're going to be seeing 
over the coming months, assuming that the story actually reaches that point. And I think it will. I think most people believe it will. But these are the same people who have covered for the Chinese Communist Party now for decades. These are the people who were claiming that the phrase China virus was racist to Asians and that it was starting a new wave of anti-Asian hate back in 2020. But all of that has changed. Now Xi Jinping is actually a very, very bad guy. And like all very, very bad guys, he's Donald Trump's fault. And so what's the only way to react? Well, let them walk us all in to another proxy war. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. 
The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!